This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Why do we shy away from strong women? Or call strong, opinionated women things like prickly or difficult? I'll be honest in that I'm a bit of a pushover who hates conflict or confrontation, but as I get older and gain more experience, I find I am willing to put up with less shit and lean into conflict when I feel like I am being wronged unfairly. But I do so with the constant fear of being labeled as difficult. me the most is that people say that Hillary is a bitch. Let me say something about that. Yeah, she is. <laughs> and so am I. And so is this one. Yeah, yeah. deal with it. You know what? <laughs> Bitches get stuff done. Who do you think is the most notable woman in art history? How many can you think of in, let's say, 10 seconds? Let's make it a game. I'm going to pause here for 10 seconds, and you think or even write down the names of famous women in the world of art. Ready? Here we go. 10 seconds. Okay, how many did you get? Tally it up. I had four. And of those four, three were known for being difficult, prickly bitches who got into arguments, bucked the norm for their time, that kind of thing. Now, let's do the same thing for men. Ready? Go. Okay, I had nine but ran out of time before I could get the tenth down. How about you? My hope is that you had more than me for women and that my memory is just failing me. We can try to do this exact same exercise in a few different areas of academia, pop culture, or history. Most famous people in history, most famous political leaders in history, most famous educators, whatever. Chances are you're going to have more men than women. And of the men, you probably are going to have a nice spread of behaviors and personality types. Of the women, most are probably going to be known for being difficult in some way. But a quick side note, remember that people are not any one thing. Difficult people can still be sensitive and kind. Kind, gentle people can still have a mean edge to them. People are layered and complex. But history only remembers people as flat 2D beings. And why is that? There are lots of reasons why we might not hear about all the different players throughout history, but the long and short of it is, for a very long time, women were not welcome in the arts. It was really only a few women who gained notoriety for a while and in certain parts of the world. It is typically because they were either so talented or coming from a very influential art family or maybe they were just very mean for a woman that it became sensationalized. That isn't to say that there weren't other women out there making incredible work. They just weren't being written about in history books. And history is a fickle bitch. Who decides who gets written about and who gets forgotten? There are probably incredibly talented people out there from all over the world that will never ever be known. The best, most talented person out there 
might not necessarily be the ones in the public eye. A little bit of the art world and the art history world comes down to luck and just knowing the right people. Remember back to episode one of Art Intervention, Enter the Gorilla Girls? In that episode, we heard about the art show, an international survey of recent painting and sculpture in New York that first prompted the original group, the Gorilla Girls, to form. That exhibition only included 17 women of 165 artists. I, maybe like you, was frustrated when I first heard this. The next thing I did was explain it away. Times were different then. We know so much more now. Art is far more inclusive, isn't it? Long story short, kind of, but not really. It is better, but there is still so much more to be done. And one of the biggest parts of the problem is, sadly, us, the audience. Who we wish to see, read about, and spend money on, that is what exacts change and makes people history-worthy. When I was teaching art, I would think about this often. How come so many student projects were based off of the artwork, by and large, of historical men? Not even really contemporary artists, but men long dead and gone. But then I realized it was because of people like me. I had fallen into the practice of only talking about big historical names. You know, people like Van Gogh or Matisse or Paul Klee. One year, I thought I would teach art through the lens of the artist of the month. Each month, I would design a giant bulletin board with facts, images, and a giant portrait of the artist of the month. In class, we would then look at artwork, we would learn about different styles and techniques based on this artist, and then we would create our own inspired work. Afterwards, I would take the portraits down from the bulletin board and hang them up around the art room. The portraits were drawn on large white poster paper with thick Sharpie, and I was super proud of how it looked. On the last day of school, as I was taking the work off the walls in preparation for the summer, I looked up at the ten faces that leered down at me. Only one was a woman. The men that looked down on me from the walls represented some of the most iconic artists, art movements, and moments in time. I'd always thought of myself as this feminist who was interested in balance. I wanted to celebrate the works of men, women, and non-binary folks equally. But looking at these images, I realized I was an advocate who was actually part of the problem. I always thought of myself as a bitch who got stuff done, but that's when I realized that maybe that wasn't actually the case. I had total choice and control in how curriculum was interpreted and which artists we would talk about. Yet, I went with those same faces and names as everybody else, and thereby was perpetuating a strange stigma. I was continuing the tradition of only talking about a super small niche group of artists. I went to the familiar names and faces that some of the kids and other teachers would already recognize, mostly because I so badly wanted to make the kids and fellow staff members care about art. So what women are out there? What non-binary folks are out there making art past, present, and hopefully future? Maybe if we just knew about more artists, past and present, we could talk about art in a broader sense and not be constantly coming back to the same old dead dudes. And old dead white dudes are fine, but 
It's just the art world is so big. Can't we mix it up a bit more? So who were some of those powerful, difficult, artistic women who broke the mold? That's a good place to start. Now, we've already talked at length about Frida Kahlo, but today I want to introduce you to another badass, difficult woman. Welcome to Art Intervention. The two women are poised over the once sleeping man, his arm raised in a vain attempt to hold them back, his energy obviously depleting as the blood leaves his body. The two women strain against the lying man and the sword, one, the maid, holding Holofernes down, while the other, Judith, grips his hair. Pulling the man's head backwards to expose his neck, Judith slices the sword across his throat, all while leaning ever so slightly back to avoid the blood now gushing from the grotesque neck wound. It's hard to look at this painting, but it is equally difficult to turn away from the scene of beautiful gore. The light plays across the three figures, warm and almost comforting, as though there were candles just beyond the canvas, lighting this dark scene. The bedsheets and clothing fall in realistic piles, appearing soft and luxurious. What a strange mix of luxury and beauty compared with this raw violence. This painting, Judith slaying Holofernes, has captivated thousands upon thousands of people since its completion in 1610. Its raw, graphic violence at the hands of two women has entranced people to wonder about its artist and what could possibly possess someone to create such an image. This work was one of the most graphic and disturbing paintings to ever come out of the Renaissance. Many were, and continue to be, shocked to learn that such an image was painted by a powerful and unremorseful woman, the great Artemisa Gentileschi. Born in Rome on July 8, 1593, Artemisa Gentileschi was the eldest daughter of Prudentia Monton and Orazio Gentileschi. Not much is known about Artemisa's early days. It seems that we don't really pick up much about the painter until she's 12 years old. At 12, Artemisa lost her mother. Prudentia passed away in childbirth at the young age of 30, and not much is known about the impact that Prudentia's death had on the family, or about any of the other children of the family. But we do know quite a bit about Artemisa's father, Orazio. Orazio was born in Pisa, Italy in 1563. He was already a well-established artist when Artemisa was born. He was well known for his provocative art and outrageous friendships with other artists, most notably the painter Caravaggio. Caravaggio was one of the it boys of the Renaissance and is remembered fondly for his massive paintings that depicted realistic biblical scenes. These images were often beautifully lit, almost emanating light themselves. This play of light and shadow is called Chiroscuro. Caravaggio is one of the Renaissance artists credited for developing this lighting effect. Aside from his impact on Renaissance painting, Caravaggio was also known for his bad boy antics. He and Orazio were caught and charged with writing graffiti in Rome. The graffiti was slander against another artist. 
The two were put on trial for their actions and served time in prison together for this act. But in fact, Caravaggio would spend much of his life in conflict with authority. Years later, he was implicated in a scandalous murder and spent the majority of his life fleeing from the law. But I digress. With his wife now gone, Orazio sought to support his daughter however he could. Originally, Orazio had no inclination of his daughter's artistic skills or talent. He, in fact, believed for a time that she was destined to become a nun. But as she grew, he saw her raw talent and ambition grow. Orazio couldn't deny her path. She would not be destined to the nunnery. Instead, he began to tutor Artemisia, teaching and helping her to refine her artistic skills. In fact, you can actually see in Artemisia's paintings her mastery of chiaroscuro, a technique that Orazio had obviously picked up from his friendship with Caravaggio. When Artemisia was 17 years old, she went to work alongside her father in order to learn more about painting. It was at this young age that Artemisia completed one of her first influential works, Susanna and the Elders. This impressive painting measured 1.7 meters by 1.21 meters, a large painting by even modern standards for a young artist to complete. The painting depicts a biblical scene that was well known in the 1600s. The story tells of a young married woman, Susanna, who was harassed and assaulted by two elders from her community while she was bathing one day. Susanna refused to have sex with the men despite their advances, and in retaliation, they blackmailed Susanna by threatening to tell others that she was a whore and an adulteress. Susanna still refused them, and was eventually put on trial for adultery due to the elders' accusations. During the trial, Susanna's husband called out the poor treatment of his wife and insisted that her accusers be questioned. The court agreed, and during questioning, the two blackmailers were unable to keep their stories straight. They were then executed for their false allegations against Susanna. Susanna and the elders presented a theme that would continue to surface over the course of Artemisia's career and life, that of strong, unrelenting women from mythological and biblical settings. Why was it that Artemisia clung to these strong women? Was it because of the early death of her mother? Why pick the theme of young women being persecuted by men in positions of power? Some contemporary art historians believe that this painting reflected a situation that had unfolded in her own life and in her very own home. You see, the Gentileschi home served as both the home base for Orazio and his five children, as well as his art studio. Friends, colleagues, and patrons often frequented the home, coming and going at all hours of the day and night. Now, remember that Orazio had a wild streak in his younger days and was friendly with many artists from the community in Rome. That meant that lots of strange folks, mostly men, would frequent the family home. Rumors began to spread that it was actually Artemisa and not her father who was encouraging these men to visit the Gentileschi home. Behind closed doors, there were whispers that Artemisa was far friendlier with these visitors than was appropriate for a girl of her age and stature. In 1611, Orazio began working on the renovations of the Palazzo Pallavicini Respiozzi, an extravagant palace in Rome. This massive undertaking found Orazio working alongside other well-known artists, including Agostino Tassi, 
As Artemisa was still studying painting under her father, she naturally came along to this new job site. Her talent was earning praise and notoriety within the art community of Rome. Orazio believed that she was beginning to surpass even his own skill, and that working alongside other artists would help her to grow and flourish. And so he asked Tazzi to tutor the young Artemisa. It was during these tutoring sessions that Tassi raped Artemisa. In her later reports, Artemisa stated that Tassi had interrupted her painting one day and attacked her. She had fought back initially, scratching at him with her bare hands before attempting to ward him off with a knife. But it was of no use. Quote, He then threw me on the edge of the bed, pushing me with a hand on my breast. He put a knee between my thighs to prevent me from closing them. Lifting my clothes, he placed a hand with a handkerchief on my mouth to keep me from screaming. It is unclear as to why, but soon after the rape, Artemisa and Tassi began a relationship. The young Artemisa claimed that Tassi had promised to marry her, perhaps as an attempt to atone for his crime against her. But after some time, no proposals of marriage developed, and Artemisa realized that Tassi would never follow through on his promise to marry her. In a rage, Orazio pressed charges against Tassi for the rape of his eldest daughter. Trial transcripts exist to this day, and they reveal court proceedings filled with torture, scandal, and accusations of murder. To prove that her accusations were well-founded, Artemisa was subjected to a gynecological examination. This examination was carried out by midwives before the preceding judge to prove that Artemisa had been a virgin prior to the supposed rape. If this wasn't bad enough, Artemisa was then tortured with thumbscrews by court officials to ensure that her accusations were in fact truthful. She is said to have screamed out at Tassi, This is the ring you give me, and these are your promises. The talented young painter could have experienced permanent disfigurement from this barbaric torture, but the fiery Artemisa not only avoided permanent damage to her fingers and hands, but also convinced officials that her testimony was truthful. Over the course of the trial, other accusations against Tassi came to light, including a conspiracy to murder his wife, an incestuous relationship with his sister-in-law, and a plot to steal paintings from Orazio. Tassi was found guilty of the rape and was sentenced to banishment from Rome, Yet, the punishment was never enforced. Instead, Tassi was jailed for only two years before having his sentence dissolved in 1613. Tassi was protected by Pope Paul V due to his talent and artistic skill. Where have we heard that before? Talented individuals getting a bit of a hall pass. The groundwork was set for the themes that would haunt Artemisa's work for the rest of her life, that of men attempting to use their power to extort women and the wrath of the woman scorned. It's here that we return to the painting, Judith Slaying Holofernes. Began and completed during the rape trial, some might say that this painting was the only justice that Artemisa ever received. The story of Judith comes from the Old Testament. 
it tells of the story of the invading forces of King Nebuchadnezzar and his army general Holofernes. Their invading forces saw the destruction of cities and sanctuaries. Nebuchadnezzar was to be worshipped as a god by the invaded Israelites. The Israelites were tired from constant war, threats of invasion, and internment. They had recently returned from Babylonian captivity and begun to rebuild their community. Holofernes was set to lay siege against the Israelites and their newly rebuilt homes. Upon hearing this news, the Israelites were distraught. Exhausted and dejected, they agreed to surrender the city. But Judith, a beautiful young widow, had grown frustrated with her fellow countrymen for not believing that God would save them from these foreign invaders. She was disturbed by their lack of bravery, and so she persuaded community elders to delay their surrender for five days. Because she was so respected, they listened to her. Judith and her maid snuck into the foreign invaders' camp, and over the course of five days, Judith ingratiated herself with Holofernes and his men, promising that she would act as a spy against the Israelites. She worked to gain his trust, and one evening, after a night of drinking and celebrating, Judith and her maid snuck into the tent of Holofernes. Holofernes was passed out from too much drink, and while he lay in the dark as his men drank and slept outside, the two women cut his head from his body. Judith and her maid returned triumphant to their countrymen with Holofernes' head held high. At the loss of their leader, the invading army fled. The painting by Artemisa was so well-received and so influential that not only did Artemisa make a second version in 1614, but the original was sold to the Grand Duke of Tuscany upon the advice of the famed astronomer Galileo Galilei. After the trial ended, Artemisa married fellow artist Pira Antonio Stiatazzi. The new couple moved away from Rome, leaving behind the scandal of the rape and the trial arriving in Florence soon after the wedding. Artemisa's fame had grown outside of Rome, and she soon received a commission to create a fresco at the home of the great late artist, Michelangelo. His home had been converted by his great nephew into a monument and museum. This incredible commission helped Artemisa to continue to grow her practice as well as her notoriety. After this commission, Artemisa was accepted into the Academy of the Arts of Drawing in 1616, the first woman to have ever been accepted into the Academy. At this point in history, women were largely prohibited from attending such schools, but Artemisa was a special case. This appointment to the Academy provided Artemisa with independence. She was now an honorary man. She could purchase her own supplies without permission from her husband, and she could sign her own contract without any man's consent. It was a very big deal of the time. In 1618, her first of five children was born, a girl whom she named Prudentia, after her mother who had died so long ago now. Artemisa also began an affair with a nobleman, Francesco Maringhi, this affair was not kept secret. In fact, her husband, Stiazzi, was apparently well aware of the affair, even to the point of corresponding with Maringi through Artemisa's love letters. Stiazzi was known for his poor financial management, and Maringi helped to keep the couple's finances in order. 
Rumors of the affair, coupled with the continued deterioration of the couple's finances, eventually caused such a conflict between Siatsi and Artemisa that they separated. Artemisa then returned to Rome without her husband in 1621 and would never see Stiazzi again. Over the years, Artemisa continued to paint and work alongside other well-known artists. Her father had also been cultivating his career and had since moved to England, where he had been appointed as a court painter to King Charles I. In 1626, Artemisa was invited to visit her father at the court of King Charles, it is speculated that this reunion of father and daughter had come about due to her father's rapidly declining health. Yet again, father and daughter were working alongside each other. But now, Artemisa was helping her father to complete his royal commissions. These commissions included famous works of art such as the fresco at Greenwich for Charles's first wife, Queen Henrietta Maria. Orazio Gentileschi died in England in 1639 at the age of 75. Artemisa is said to have stayed for some time in England after the passing of her father. Though it is unclear what she did during this time, it is clear that she left well before the English Civil War, which began in 1642. Artemisa returned to Europe, settling in Naples, where she would remain for the rest of her life. Her final years are shrouded in uncertainty even the exact date and cause of her death remain unknown. Documents exist between Artemisa and her patron, Don Antonio Rufo. The letters indicate that she was alive and working until at least 1654. In 1656, the plague hit Naples, devastating the city, killing nearly the entire population. It is believed that Artemisa contracted and died of the plague during this outbreak. That is the story of Artemisa Gentileschi, a powerful and talented Renaissance painter. Her work and fearlessness earned her praise and recognition across Europe and across centuries. She feared no man and spoke volumes through her portrayal of strong female characters exacting their revenge over the men who would abuse them. Though her life was marred by scandal, her work and talent should be what we remember her for. She was more than her trial, and more than the attack that almost cost her her career. She was a respected, well-liked, talented, and intelligent woman. She was Artemisa, a difficult woman who got stuff done. Art Intervention is researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Alexandra Hunt. Follow us on social media at Art Intervention. And if you like the episode, don't forget to subscribe. Give it a rating and tell a friend. Remember friends, sharing is caring. This podcast is created on the traditional territories of Treaty 7 land in Southern Alberta, Canada. Art Intervention is a proud member of the Alberta Public Radio Podcast Network.